Today is May 23rd, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Catherine Switzer for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Catherine is best known for being the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a big number, but she would like to be remembered for being the person for creating opportunities for global opportunities for women's running, which led to the inclusion of women in the 1984 Olympic Games. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Good. You have been involved with women's running for a really long time, including the Boston Marathon in 1967, which started it all. But what age did you actually start running, and how did you get into it? Well, actually, it wasn't the Boston Marathon that started it all, but that was one of the most public things. But just to go way back, I started running um, when I was 12 years old, and I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. It was a brand-new sport. I was only an eighth grader, um, very young, um, and I was really intimidated by going out for a team and trying. And my dad said if I ran a mile a day, I'd get in great shape and I would make the field hockey team. So I trained and trained and trained and trained, and the next year, um, uh, that next autumn, I tried out for the field hockey team, and I did make the team, and I really was one of the best players. And um, the reason was because I could run. It wasn't that I'd had any stick skills whatsoever, but I really never got tired, and it was because of that mile a day, especially as we lived outside of Washington, D.C., so the summers are very, very, very hot and humid. I think one of the most amazing things about that experience, and I often talk about this, is that it wasn't just the mile a day of conditioning, but it was um, the mile a day of empowerment that I got at a very early age that really changed my life and made me love running, not for just the act of running, but the sense of accomplishment, the self-esteem, the confidence. Every day I ran when I was young, I felt like I had a victory under my belt nobody could take away from me. And here I am running 53 years later, and honestly, every day I run, I still have that sense of the victory under my belt that nobody can take away from me. And when you were running this mile a day, were you running by yourself or with your dad? Or where were you doing this running? Well, I was in northern Virginia, in Vienna, Virginia, actually in a little town called Dunn, Loring, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. My dad was in the Army, um, stationed at the Pentagon and then at another nearby place there. And I ran around our yard. My dad measured it off for me, and it was seven laps. And it was a really lumpy, kind of clotted grass yard. And um, I ran the seven laps every day and just counted them off. And, you know, some days I got lost in thought and forgot how many laps I had done. Um, and I was so entranced with this that um, every summer then I would increase my distance a little bit. So that by the time I graduated from high school, I was running three miles a day. And this on top of the fact that um, uh, I played field hockey and then I played basketball. And in the spring, um, since the alternative was softball, I didn't like softball, I would go out and just run every afternoon. Honestly, I just loved it. And I had no idea that um, there were things like, you know, the Olympics until I watched the 1960 Olympic Games on television. And it, it still didn't register with me because the only running events 
I remember seeing was Wilma Rudolph running the 100 yards. And I knew that, you know, 100 yards, I couldn't run 100 yards. But I, but at one mile or two miles, I could beat every boy in the neighborhood. <laughs> so um, it was it was the running that, that really propelled me. Um, but I'll tell you, to this day, if field hockey had been an Olympic sport then, I would um, I don't think I ever would have become a distance runner until much later in my life because field hockey was my greatest love. And in fact, when, after I graduated from high school, I went on to um, first two years of college. We're at a small college in Lynchburg, Virginia, called Lynchburg College. And my primary motivation for going there, um, well, there were three. One, one was because it was the only co-ed um, collegiate institution in Virginia. Um, and my father wanted me to go in Virginia because it was in-state and he wouldn't have to pay so much tuition. And the other schools, of course, were all women's schools or men's schools. So that was a co-ed school. And also because it had um, a field hockey team. And so I was playing field hockey uh, for those first two years at Lynchburg. And also uh, we just introduced lacrosse. So I was playing lacrosse and I also played basketball. So I was quite busy at Lynchburg College. Then the, one of the most amazing things happened in my second year there. In 1966, in the spring of 1966, the track coach um, came out on one rainy day and, and nobody had turned up for practice. And I was the only person out running and I was running laps on the track. Normally I didn't run on the track. I ran kind of on the roads and paths around the college. And he put a stopwatch on me and then came over to me and said, um, can you run a mile? And I said, of course I can run a mile. I'm running two miles. And he said, well, he said, this weekend we're having one of our first track meets, um, and we have lost a lot of the guys on the track team because they changed eligibility requirements, and I have only one guy who can run the mile. So if you could run a mile, you'd pick up points for our team. I said, oh, sure, coach. You know, I'd be glad to help out, you know. So he said, okay, we'll come out on Saturday. And run this mile. Well, the news got out that a girl was going to run on the men's track team in 1966 in Virginia, okay, which was really pretty far south in those days and had quite kind of southern, you know, um, attitudes about things. And the word spread, and then it was in the college newspaper, and then it was picked up by um, the local Lynchburg newspaper in, in, in the town, and that was picked up by the Associated Press, and then, you know, before long it was in the New York Herald Tribune and in the Washington Post. And so, you know, one day at breakfast my father was reading the paper, and there's this picture of me that said, girl to run on men's track team. And he called me and said, uh, what's going on down there? And I said, oh, gosh, Dad, I'm just helping out the the, the track team. He said, well, we'll come down and, and watch. And I said, oh, Dad, I'm just going to run four laps. I'm going to be last, you know, for heaven's sakes. Well, it, they had more people turn up for that track meet than you can imagine. And that was my first experience with um, sort of the polarizing influence of publicity because um, there were a lot of people that thought this was just the greatest thing they'd ever seen. A girl is going to run a mile. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's like climbing Everest, they thought. Um, and, 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 I mean, it was nothing to me because, you know, I'd run two or three miles, and I'd you know, covered the cross-country course, you, you know, at the school and everything. I didn't think it was any big deal at all. 
And then the other half of the people were outraged, you know, that there's a girl in shorts and she's going to run on the men's team. Well, that's outrageous. It was a terrible thing. But the best thing of all were that the guys on the team, even in the Southern School, were really, really nice to me and really, really welcoming. And so I finished my mile and I won the points for the team. And then I think the next weekend um, I ran um, a half mile and I think maybe one more mile. And then that was all I was allowed to run because um, it was a different conference. There was one conference um, called the Dixie Conference um, that that um, had no rules stipulating against women, but the Mason-Dixon Conference did. Anyway, um, it was after this, anyway, that I was going to transfer schools. Anyway, I was going to transfer to Syracuse University because um, the deal with my dad was that I would go to his choice of college for the first two years since he was paying, and then the second um, two years I could get my choice. And by that time um, I had wanted to be a journalist and, and study sports writing. And my whole dream always was that um, I knew I could never be a professional athlete myself, never really wanted to be a professional athlete. I mean, it just it didn't quite exist in my consciousness. Um, but I love being around sports, and so I thought I love to write and I love to be around sports. So I'll go to a university that teaches how to write, and um, maybe I'll be a sports writer. And that was a very good decision. Um, Syracuse University, um, then and as it does now, has one of the best journalism schools in the country. So then I transferred to Syracuse University, and, th- and this is what really began the Boston Marathon story. So I'll start telling that when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, that's it's amazing how just timing sometimes leads to amazing experiences. You being out there on the track running laps, when that's not usually where you did them, led to you being able to compete on the boys' team. Um, and yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that the, that coach would have seen me anyway because he knew I'd been running. Um, but that that was a particular moment. That, my whole life has kind of been like that. There are these kind of Forrest Gump moments when I just kind of walk into it. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love the Forrest Gump moment. That's the, that's a good way to describe it. And so when you went to Syracuse, you've already been running. You got to compete on the boys' team and started experiencing the media attention uh, for just being a girl and, and wanting to run. And how did you go from running, you know, a couple miles just to be in shape to let's enter these races? To, sorry, to what's uh, that? So, uh, so how did you go from – just running to stay in shape um, and then running on the boys' team and only being able to run a mile to deciding that you wanted to start doing road races or did you even know that road races were um, available at that point? Okay, good. That's a good question. All right. While I was running at Lynchburg, um, I also um, found out about the AAU um, and that they had track meets outside of – outside of the collegiate realm and school realm. And I made contact with a coach in Baltimore. And another woman at Lynchburg was also running. And we trained together. And we mostly trained for the 800. Well, it was the 880 in those days. And so we we would go often, not often, but occasionally to to Baltimore um, or to the Quantico Relays. And um, I think there was another meet in Philadelphia where we ran an AAU 800. 
And so I was aware now of track and women running track, and I was aware of the fact that there was an Olympic Games and that the longest event in the Olympic Games was 800. And that was a very frustrating experience for me on the track because um, I just was not fast, and I just didn't have that, that cardiovascular kind of capability. So I, but I did know about competitive meets. Um, when, so when I transferred to Syracuse, um, I had sort of a shock, which was that at Syracuse, women's sports were not even in the picture. It was a huge powerhouse of sports for men in football, ice hockey, basketball, lacrosse, even wrestling. They were very, very good. And But the women only had play days or intramurals. So I said, okay, um, I guess that's the attitude up here. And that women themselves, obviously, up here don't want sports, else they would have, you know, demanded and created something different. So what I love to do is run, and running is something I can do by myself for forever. But um, I'll go check out the men's cross-country team because, you know, I had run at Lynchburg. So I went into the office of the coach at Syracuse and asked if I could come and run on the men's cross-country team. And he said, oh, you know, I read about you already in Sports Illustrated where you ran on the, the Lynchburg team, he said, you know, you're welcome to come and train with us, but we cannot allow a woman to run officially on the team. It's against NCAA rules. We're in a different conference. And I said, okay, that's all right. He said, he said yeah, you can come out and work out with the team. Well, of course, when he closed the door, you know, I closed the door to his office, apparently he burst out laughing, thinking, you know, ha, 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 the girl's never going to show up. And um, I know this because the guy who eventually coached me was in the office at the time. And actually, so was my my uh, soon-to-be boyfriend and um, not soon-to-be ex-husband. <laughs> he was in the office, too, at the time. It was all amazing. You talk about timing. Anyway, the next day I showed up for um, cross-country practice, and I uh, went out to the cross-country course, which was on the local golf course. And it was there um, that I met Arnie Briggs, who was one of the guys in the office. He was an, an older guy. He was like 50. To me, that was ancient at the time. Um, he was not an official um, coach, but he had helped the team out for 30 years. After World War II, he'd come, he, was a, he had been a runner, and after World War II, he came back to be a mailman at, in Syracuse at Syracuse University. And he still ran every day, and so he would come and work out with the team. And for, for the first few years, he was obviously very, very good. He was a marathoner and um, had run like a, uh, a 230 marathon and, and, and therefore finished, you know, 10th one year at the Boston Marathon, which was such a big deal. And he had run the Boston Marathon, and um, he, he still held the upstate New York record. So when I came out to run with the boys on the cross-country course, they were really good. These are all scholarship athletes, which I had never run into before. And um, he was helping with the clipboards and the, and the scoring and the timing and everything. And he felt really sorry for me because I was so slow that I kept getting lost. Anyway, he started jogging with me, and, and he was injured and, and, and broken down and thought he was never going to really run again. But he knew even injured he could run as slow as I was running. And he, he just started running with me a little bit every day and, you know, further and further and further. And... You know, it's, it's interesting, sometimes with injuries, not yours apparently, but um, <laughs> if 
if you sometimes run on soft surfaces and grass and you go slowly, you can sort of run through an injury and recover, and that's what happened to Arnie with his Achilles and his knees. We got better and better and better, and pretty soon we were we were out, you know, running, you know, six and seven, eight miles a day together. And all during these runs, Arnie would tell me about this race called the Boston Marathon. And, I mean, i got to tell you, I was just entranced. The idea of 26 miles, 385 yards, and all the history that was involved with the marathon. I mean, it was just, you know, fabulously interesting to me. And, um, you know, the story goes is that, that the boys on the cross-country team who were, again, again, I have to repeat this, were so wonderful, so supportive, really, you know, very motivational and kind. And I thought, gosh, you know, every, every time I'm around guys who run, they're really a different kind of guy. It's not like they're not bullshy and in-your-face and, and aggressive like these other guys in, in some of the other sports. They're really nice guys. So um, they had gone indoors for the winter because Syracuse winters are absolutely notorious. Um, the, the winters are worse in Syracuse than they are in Anchorage. And um, they went inside the field house and were, were running, and it was very dusty on a board track inside this field house. And I, I went in there for two nights, and I said to Arnie, I said, I can't stand this. It's, you know, getting up my nose. I can't breathe. This is... And he said, well, he said, the alternative is to run out in the cold. And he said, it is very, very cold. And, and I've never known anybody who would run through the winter with me out in the cold. I've done it many times. I said, well, I'll, I'm willing to try. And he said, okay. So we started running in the winter outside together. And you know, sometimes it was like 30 and 40 degrees below zero. So it was unbelievable. Canyons of snow. There were 190. Are you there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, that's, that's another call coming in. I'm not going to take it. Um, okay. But will you, should we wait a minute until it stops peeping? Yeah, that'd be good. Okay. I, I, I love when, when that happens. And they'll, they'll edit all this out. So I've had um, my first couple of women I, I interviewed, they were older, and it was very hard for them to hear. So it was very um, slow talking, enunciating very well, but a lot of repeating of the questions. <laughs> so they'll have a lot of editing for the first couple that we did. <laughs> Hopefully you're not going to have to repeat too many. Okay, I think it stopped peeping. Okay. Excellent. So, okay, here we go. So there was 196 inches of snow that year in Syracuse. I'll never forget. It was just unbelievable. We were running through canyons of snow. Anyway, and, and, and it's, a, it's sort of an apocryphal story because you know how you are as a student. You're exhausted. You're cranky. It was right before Christmas, right before exams. I didn't want to run this night. Um, it was howling blizzard. Arnie said, come on, we got to do it. You know, if, if you're serious about running, you know, you run all the time and, so to cajole me through this workout, he started telling me yet another Boston Marathon story. And as I said, he'd run 15 of them. So, you know, over the weeks, it was like a replaying Luke film. I could, I could tell the stories better than he could. And, and this particular night, I was really snippy, and he said, uh, started a story. And I said, oh, Arnie, let's just quit talking about the damn Boston Marathon and run it. And he said, well, a woman can't run it. And I said, what do you mean a woman can't run it? He said, women are too weak and too fragile. It's 26 miles, 300. I said, I know how far it is, Arnie, for heaven's sakes. That's ridiculous. I said, we're running 10 miles in a blizzard. And he said, that is not 26 miles. And I said, Arnie, I know, but if I move up from 3 miles to 10 miles, I can move up to 26. He said, no, a woman can't do it. And I said, Look, you got to be crazy. You know, my ancestors were pioneers, and we went back and forth and back and forth. 
and then finally, when he was so resolute, I snipped at him and said, a woman ran the Boston Marathon last year. Roberta Gibb ran in 1966. And he exploded in rage. And this is mild-mannered little Arnie. He said, no dame ever ran no marathon. And I said, she did too. I read it in Sports Illustrated. Of course, Sports Illustrated was the Bible in those days. And Arnie said, I don't care where you read it. No dame ever ran no marathon. And I said, and you don't have a training partner if you don't believe that I can do it. And he said, oh, God. He went like this. He said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it. But even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, if you would prove to me in practice that you could cover 26 miles, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, well, you've got a deal. And it was really great, another moment that, where your life has changed, because um, then I became really focused. You know, I was no longer snippy. I no longer tried to get out of workouts. I was determined to prove to Arnie that I could run 26 miles. And, you know, we trained and trained and trained and trained, and, you know, we had real setbacks sometimes. I mean, like I'll never forget when I did the first 18-miler, you know, I just had to sit down on the side of the road and fell asleep, and Arnie had to, you know, flag down a car and bring us home, you know. <laughs> Because I was just so totally exhausted. But anyway, the day came we were going to do the 26. And when we finished the 26 miles, to cut a long story short, because it was going to take us all day, when we finished the 26 miles, Arnie said, I don't believe it. You're going to do it. I just don't believe this is fantastic. I thought, I feel really good, too. And he said, oh, you look great. I said, you know, I think we mismeasured this. Let's run another five miles. He said, you could run another five miles? And I said, I feel great, Arnie. Let's go for another five miles. That means, you know, if we've mismeasured the course. He said, we haven't mismeasured the course. It's long if it's anything. I said, no, no. Then we can go to Boston. We know no matter what, you know, what the conditions are. You know, again, apocryphal. Um, we can finish the Boston Marathon. And he said, well, you're not going to have a problem finishing the Boston Marathon. You're just, you just look really great. I said, well, look, I'm, let's run another five. And he said, well, if you can do it, I can do it. So we went out for another, we kept going, and went out for, kept on for another five miles. And about a mile now from the finish, Arnie turned really gray and started weaving all around the road, and his eyes started crossing. And I realized he was absolutely out on his feet. You know how that, that totally empty face? And I said, come on, come on, we can do this, we can do this. And I kind of put my arm through his and pulled him along, and I said, come on, we can do this, only a mile to go. And we finished the workout, and I was so excited. I mean, really, that was one of my greatest moments of, of sense of accomplishment. And I threw my arms around Arnie. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out, and he went limp in my arms, and I sort of set him down to the curb, and he came to, and he said, he said, I think women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. <laughs> and actually, it was great because we had totally discovered this amazing you know, I I always I felt like Magellan every day. You know, Arnie was scared witless. Arnie thought that we were going to fall off the edge of the earth and that I was going to turn into a man. I was going to get hair on my chest. I was never going to be able to have children. And he never articulated any of this, but he apparently was getting a whole lot of grief from um, these guys back at the post office who would see us out running together, you know, his colleagues. And they would say, Arnie, and they're going to ruin that girl. She seems like a nice girl, Arnie. She's going to get big legs. She's going to turn into a guy, Arnie. You know, the old myth. 
And Arnie had believed those myths, and yet he didn't want to lose me as a training partner, and he didn't want to discourage me. And so now we'd run this marathon, more than that, 31 miles, and I was fine. He was not fine. And so suddenly we both realized, hey, you know, there is something to the fact that, that women do have more endurance and stamina than men. And clearly the guys on the cross-country team would often come uh, on a weekend to do a long run with us, and they would, they would never go more than 10 or 12 miles. They'd say, you guys are crazy, and then they'd go back home. And we just kept going, and I, the, the longer it got, the better I got. So, okay, at that moment then, Arnie, next day, was all business. He came over to my dorm. And he said, you know, you've got to sign up for this race. This is a really serious race. And I said, Arnie, I'm really worried about that because if, if, if I should sign up for the race, why haven't other women done it before? And he said, because they can't do it. And I said, Arnie, this woman ran it last year and she didn't wear a number. And he said, women should sign up for things and they should, anybody in the Boston Marathon should be wearing a number. It's a serious race. You don't get into Boston without signing up. You're a card-carrying member of the AAU. Those people at Boston are very tough, and we have to follow the rules. And that means I've got to get travel permits. You've got to fill out the entry form. You've got to pay your $2 entry fee. I always say that to make people laugh, <laughs> you know, because it was $2. Wow. Um, and you've got to get a medical certificate. And I said, why do I need a medical certificate? Because it says, see here on the entry, it says, you must either get a medical check or provide a certificate. He said, you don't get a medical check right before the race. He said, it's chaos in the gym, and guys are all running around naked. You're going to be embarrassed, and they want you to provide the certificate so that there won't be such long lines waiting. I said, okay, okay. So he said, you go over to the infirmary now. You get um, a checkup for your blood pressure and stuff, and then come back with the certificate, and then we'll finish filling this out. So we filled out the entry form. I got the certificate from the doctor, no problem. You know, he had me run up and down the steps a few times and took my blood pressure and listened to my heart, and he said, fit as a fiddle. (laughs) So so we we filled out the entry form, um, and as I was filling it out, I said, you know, Arnie, maybe this is against the rules. He said it is not against the rules. There's nothing about gender on the entry form. I've got the AAU rule book here, and we went through the rule book. Had men's track and field, women's track and field, and then the third category of the rule book just said the marathon. I said, oh, boy, Arnie. I said, you know, we're we're pushing a point here. And he said, no. He said, you deserve to run. You've trained. And I said, I'm going to be really noticed at Boston, Arnie. And he said, I know, and I'm proud of you. It really, it really was nice. And so anyway, we sent in the entry form, and, and I signed my name, K.V. Switzer. And that's another point of the story, which, you know, you know from my book, I made this really clear. Uh, my dad misspelled my name on my birth certificate. He left out the E of the Catherine. So my name had always been misspelled. And um, I was really tired of it. And because I was in love with J.D. Salinger and E.E. Cummings and T.S. Eliot and all these great writers, it seemed that they all signed their name with their initials. So about age 12 when I was writing for my – and 13 when I was writing for my high school newspaper, I was signing my name K.V. Switzer. So I carried on throughout school and college, and on the entry form, I signed K.V. Switzer. And if you look at my checks and cards and everything, I signed K.V. Switzer. So – um, it went in KB Switzer, and obviously the officials thought it was from a guy because they issued me a number. And carry on with the story. Keep going. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, actually, 
a lot of people asked, they said, well, at that point, they had to do physicals at Boston Marathon, and a lot of people have asked, well, how did you get a number without doing your physical? And that actually answers a lot of questions. You just send in a physical form from the doctor. Yeah. Did they send you the number then, or did you have to go pick it up, or how did no, you No, you, you had to pick it up in the gym, and, and that's another interesting part of the story. But definitely on the entry form, and I don't even know, I may still have a copy of that around here someplace um, of an entry form. It says, um, we, we request that you submit a, a doctor's certificate in advance, if possible. So, I mean, he said, see, they really want this in advance. Now, the next thing that happened is, you know, we, we, we then went, we were heading up to Boston, but um, I think that night, which meant it was about three weeks before Boston, maybe four, um, I think three, you know, I, I was dating this guy who was the assistant track coach. He was a graduate assistant. He was a graduate student there working on a fellowship, and um, and he was a hammer thrower. He was wanting to make the Olympic team, and he was a terrific athlete. Really, his name was Tom Miller. It was a really terrific athlete, and I always joked, and I said, the only problem is is that he let everybody know he was a terrific athlete. But anyway, he really was. I was in awe of him, and, you know, he's the only person I ever met that really had a, a chance of making the, an Olympic team. I mean, it was, just seemed so awesome. Anyway, I was telling him, you know, at the college bar that night we were having a beer, I said, I said that Arnie and I were going to go up and run the Boston Marathon, and he thought that was the most hilarious thing he ever heard. He said, the girl can't run 26 miles. I said, well, I've done it in practice. And he said, you got to be kidding me. And I said, you know, well, yeah, we're going to go. And he said, well, then I'm going too. And I said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. He said, because if a girl can do it, I can do it. And we had this argument. And, you know, you never argued with him because he was always right. So I said, all right, come to Boston. You know, I said, you know, you're gonna, you weigh 235 pounds. You've never run more than a mile in your life, and you're going to run 26, right? And he said, he said yes. And I said, you know, you got to train. And he said, no, you don't, because if a girl can do it, I can do it. So he came with us, along with with John Leonard, a guy who was on the cross country team, um, and he missed all the long runs because he was always hungover from fraternity parties. But he was out, <laughs> he's out with us during the week. Anyway, so I thought, oh my gosh, what a team we've got. You know, you know, <laughs> he's. You know, we got you know one guy who's always got a hangover, one guy who's never run the distance, who weighs two hundred thirty-five pounds. And we got a fifty-year-old guy, and we got a girl. I mean, you know, it's just <laughs> the worst imaginable team you can imagine. We were known as the Syracuse Harriers, and we drove in Arnie's car to Boston and got a, a motel at in Newton someplace. And I had one room, and those three guys had the other room. Anyway, the morning of the race, it was snowing and sleeting. It was horrible. And I had on this really cruddy gray warm-up suit because Arnie said, bring your old stuff to Boston because you never get your stuff at the finish line. And, um, you know, you never get your gear back. They never get your gear to you. And um, so wear your stuff, warm up in it, and throw it away as you get warmed up. So wear stuff you can afford to get rid of. And so I had this gray baggy warm-up suit. Well, boy, you know, none of us wanted to get rid of anything because it was really freezing. And I felt really bad because I had this really good-looking shorts and top on underneath. I wanted. To, I was really proud of being a fairly good-looking woman and um, and still athletic because the old myth was that you know you, you know any woman took part in sports and she was you know she had to look like a dog. And I thought that that was really very unfair, and and other women would participate in sports 
if they weren't afraid of becoming, you know, masculine looking. And, and that a lot of people said sports did that to women, that it, that it created, you know, them to look masculine. And so I wanted to really, you know, look good and, and give, inspire people. You know, I, I, I knew that I could finish Boston. I wasn't at all worried about that. I wanted to do it and look strong and look feminine. Well, so looking feminine was out the window because, you know, I had to wear this baggy gray warm-up suit. And I still had my lipstick and my headband and my earrings and mascara on and stuff, but um, uh, it was cold. It was freezing wet snow with a headwind coming in from the east. And we all piled into the car to go to the to the start, and Arnie said, wait in the car because the the numbers are going to be together in a, in a team envelope. We've all gotten our certificates and stuff except for Tom, and we'll I'll pick the numbers up. So Tom had to go in with him and take the physical. In the meantime, you know, John and I are in the back of the car waiting for them to come out, and so Arnie came out with our numbers, and we pinned our numbers on, and then we started warming up. And Tom was still in there because he had to stand in line to get a physical. So by the time he came out, he was really steamed, you know, and working, worked up and saying how long it took and all that stuff. And then we piled into the starting area, and the officials pushed us into the, the starting area and, and didn't notice that I was a woman. I wasn't really trying to hide, but I was trying to stay warm. And I often say that if it had been a warm day and I had on that shorts and top, I would have been spotted immediately by the officials. In the meantime, all the men knew I was a woman and were coming up to me and wanting their picture taken and saying, hey, you know, it's great that you're a girl and you're very, very motivational and, and encouraging and say, yay, great, that's terrific, and um, we're with you all the way, and, and pushed us in then to, into the starting area, checked off our bib numbers, pushed us into the starting area, and the gun went off and down the road we went. Um, so a series of coincidences also led us to this point, you know, signing my name on the application is KV Switzer, it being snowing and sleeting. Um, th those are big coincidences. And then the next one was at about two miles as we were going, in the, going along in the race, feeling great, and all the guys coming past us were saying, hey, it's great to see a girl here, terrific, I wish my wife would run, I wish my girlfriend would run, give me some tips to get my wife running. And um, then the, the press bus came up, press truck came by us with the photographers on the back and they were taking pictures of us and we were waving to them you know uh, like hey mom on the nightly news and i often joked and i said gosh only in boston was so poorly organized in those days you know they started the press truck behind the runners okay and they had to beat their way through and work their way up so they were in front of us and we were waving to them and alongside of the press truck came a press bus that had um the scribes, you know, the guys who were writing about the race, as well as, wait for it, the officials, which means they were dropping the timers off as they went along. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't, you know, and I look back on that as a race director myself of, of, of hundreds of races. I mean, to, to not have your officials out, you know, with the, with the watches at the, at the checkpoints well in advance is just it's heart-stopping to me to think of it. But at any, cause anything can go wrong with a vehicle. But anyway, there they were. And on this bus was the race director and co-director, Will Cloney and Jacques Semple. And they had been the guardians of the Boston Marathon for years and years and years. And they had been very used to seeing all kinds of clowns at the start of their race, whether they were boys from Harvard who had a bet 
that they could, you know, lead the Boston Marathon for longer than anybody else, you know, in, on, in, in Harvard. And they came in, you know, having gone to a fraternity party the night before or, or guys that were wearing signs that said, eat at, eat at Joe's Grill. And, and apparently one year some guy came with like a frogman outfit on or something like that. Well, Jock Semple was n- known for his very, very, very hot temper, and he would just bash these guys and push them out of the race and say, you know, get off the starting line. This is for the elites and all that kind of stuff. Well, on the bus, these guys, the press, were teasing him, and they were saying, hey, Jocko, you know, what's new this year? There's a girl in your race, um, and look, her name is KV. I wonder what K stands for. What does her mother call her? Kurt, Carl, Kim? And they really teased him, and apparently, you know, he just lost his temper and with this teasing, and he stopped the, the bus and, and made the guy stop the bus, the driver, and he jumped off the bus and ran up behind me so I didn't see him or hear him and, and, and just grabbed me, grabbed me by the sweatshirt and my, and my arm and my, and my shoulder and spun me back, you know, and pulled me back and screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers, and tried to pull my bib numbers, rip my bib numbers off my front and my back. And I jumped back from him. I was so scared. I'd never seen anybody so fierce. He, you know, just if you look at the pictures, you can see his face is just out of control. And he is screaming lots of very bad things at me and saying, get out of my race, give me those numbers. And Man, I just I just turned and tried to flee, and he caught my sweatshirt. He caught the back corner of my number, actually, and ripped the corner off, but it stayed on my back. But he ripped, had me by the shirt, and I was trying to get away from him, and Arnie's just all over him saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her. Leave her alone. And he said, you stay out of this, Arnie. And I thought, my God, Arnie knows this maniac. You know, I, I mean, I just thought he was some out of the blue character. And... With that, he has me by the shirt, and with that, I'm trying to run, and I felt like this is like a nightmare. Um, Big Tom, my hammer-throwing boyfriend, is right alongside, looks over, comes running full tilt, and throws a cross-body block into Jock Semple and flattens him, sends him right through the air, and crash on the side of the road he went. And, I mean, I thought he'd killed him. And I went, and Arnie said, run like hell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we were, we were all, I mean, Arnie and I were so scared. Arnie's eyes were like saucers. And we just took off down the road, and Tom was really, you know, steamed and, and combative. And John and I and Arnie were just went flying past the press truck at this point. And we could kind of hear it gearing, the, the gears grinding behind us because the, the press people were shouting, go after her, go after her. We want, you know, get a picture, go after her, go after her. And um, in the you know the truck lurched. You could hear it kind of lurch and a lot of crashing of photographers falling down. And I mean, I just felt awful, just awful. I thought, oh, you know, I've, this is this really important race, and I, you know, I'm so embarrassed and I was so terrified. I mean, he really, really frightened me. And then the press truck came up and got in front of us again, and we we're taking pictures, and they were very aggressive. You know, who who are you? What are you trying to prove? Are you a suffragette? And I thought, I'm just trying to run. <laughs> and so I got quiet. I didn't say anything. But at this point is, is when, you know, I looked over at, at Arnie, you know, who, 
who was running along bravely alongside of me, and, and Tom is running along and punching the air. And I just said, you know, Arnie, I, you know, I, I don't know where you stand in this now, but I, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to, because all of these people don't believe a woman can do this, and they're all just hovering here, hoping I drop out. And, and of course, your first instinct is that you're so upset and you're so hurt and embarrassed you know you do kind of want to step off the road and then i got fortunately i got really angry myself and said you know golly i really trained hard for this and these people are just believing in the old myths and expecting me not to be here and that's not fair it's a public road and and so arnie said all right all right all right let's let's get it together let's get it together and let's, let's slow down slow down we're going to bring it back we're going to slow down and and I said, I'm going to finish no matter what, because if I don't finish, nobody's going to believe women can do this. Nobody's going to believe women um, can get involved in things and finish it, because everybody was saying women are always barging into places they're not welcome, and, and then they can't finish the job. So I, no matter what, I'm going to finish. And um, finally, the press truck got tired of just hovering there, because I clearly was going to finish, and I decided I wasn't going to answer any more of their inane and aggressive questions. And they drifted on back up to the front of the race where they should have been anyway with the elite competitors. And then the rest of the race was an amazing kind of awareness thing where, you know, I went into a terrible trough. Arnie and I and everybody did. And because um, you were just all the adrenaline had left. And I then came out and was very angry and had murdered Jock Semple in my mind a million different ways until I got to about Heartbreak Hill. And then I kind of, you know how the anger goes, it just, it leaves you and and you start getting philosophical and you get, um, I got my energy back and I began to wonder why this had happened and I suddenly thought, you know, it's not his fault, he's an overworked race director and he's a man of his time, he's a product of his time and he believes all these old myths. But where are the women, why aren't there other women here? I had no idea, by the way, that Roberta Gibb was in the race. Um, and that she was way up ahead in front of me. It never even occurred to her, me that she would be she would be in the race. And um, so I got to thinking, well, where are the other women? Why aren't there other women running? And I realized, duh, you know, it, you know, it wasn't their fault that they didn't have an opportunity to run in the Boston Marathon, or that the longest distance in the Olympic Games was 800 meters, or that they didn't have scholarships, or they didn't have prize money, or they didn't have teams. And so, duh, it was just a really eureka moment when I said, if if only we could create the opportunities, they would be like me. They would come out and take advantage of those opportunities, you know? I had the opportunity of my dad encouraging me and the guys on the team encouraging me and then me meeting Arnie and he encouraging me. And other women, if they only had that opportunity, would would have the same response. And it was such a great feeling to say, I know what I'm going to do. You know, when I finish this race, I'm going to create opportunities for women in running. And I'm also going to try to become a better athlete because Arnie said, let's just slow down, make sure no matter what happens, we can finish. So, you know, we finished in four hours and 20 minutes. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I could have broken four hours. Arnie says, absolutely, we could have broken four hours. But we finished in four hours and 20 minutes. I knew I was going to be given a hard time about that performance because people in those days said, oh, anybody can walk four hours and 20 minutes in a marathon. You know, that's a jogging time. 
Um, so I said, okay, you know, I'll live with that until I show you that I can become a better athlete. Um, but the, the main ambition was to create the opportunities. So um, I didn't realize that um, that we had done anything exceptional, really. I thought that this was just kind of an aberration. And it wasn't until we were um, on the way home that night, back to Syracuse University, um, we stopped on the thruway for some coffee and ice cream about in Albany or someplace about halfway and could barely climb out of the car. We were all so stiff and sore. And when we went into the cafe there about midnight, there was a guy reading a newspaper, and the whole front and back of the paper was just covered with these pictures from the Boston Marathon. And I said, oh, golly, you know, I think my life is about to change because that was it was obviously huge publicity and um, and very controversial. You know, it was like, you know, she dared to upset the status quo, and there was clearly people who thought it, writers who thought it was a terrible thing that I did, and others who were applauding me. And in the days that followed, because I was a journalism student, we had a, a newspaper library at the university that had the major dailies from all over the world, and and I would say most of them had that, that amazing picture, the three-part picture on the front page of the papers, because it was about the changing of a of an era it was a huge breakthrough and you know most of them took the attitude um that girl was saved by her boyfriend so it was sort of a chivalrous thing this girl wants to run and she can't do it without her boyfriend saving her um and the other one was about you know outrageous stuff about me barging in where women are not welcome but others were very very um congratulatory about you know a marathon is 26 miles, 385 yards, and this woman did it. And um, isn't that amazing, you know? So anyway, at this point, what time is it? I don't have a watch. Uh, so it's 5 o'clock your time, 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock, okay. Um, yeah, because, I mean, we're hardly into the story. <laughs> well, I mean, we told the Boston Marathon story anyway. Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, and so when you, and when you came home, or I guess you had seen all of the uh, magazines and, and you know newspaper articles that you that were from all over the world, which is just amazing to me that it, it went that fast. Oh, it was it was it hit the wire services. It was it was by in the paper. See, in those days, you got to understand newspapers. Um, Boston had five or six daily newspapers. It was phenomenal the number of newspapers. The press on the bus. Um, I I got I got um, Frank Lipsky from the New York Times who was alongside when this happened to write that piece in my book uh, about and I the being an, being an eyewitness to this and he writes that they would type on their on their knees they had little portable typewriters and they would type the story of the race as as it went along and they had couriers at different drop off points along the race to run the copy back into the press rooms so that the story was being put together as they got to the finish. And so as soon as the race was finished, they could get their story off to print. So they would make even the afternoon editions, and then they would write again and make the evening editions, and then they would write again for the morning edition. So it was it was an astonishing industry. And the wire services, of course, I mean, I don't know if they had – they probably had ticker tape in those days. Yes, they had the ticker wire. 
and those that ticker wire, you know, went on transatlantic cable, so it went all over the world very, very quickly. Um, yeah, but, but to think of it pre-fax and pre-internet is really quite amazing. Anyway, what was also amazing is Jock Semple apparently uh, went into um, a phone someplace immediately at the conclusion of the race, called the head office of the AAU, which I believe then was in Washington, D.C., not Indianapolis. Um, I can't remember. I have the letter here someplace. But uh, registered a complaint um, to AAU, the AAU to Olin Castle, who, that, which really infuriated me, and I'll go on record for saying this, because Olin Castle himself had been a runner and then was given the job as executive director of the AAU. And then he authorized not only my disqualification from the Boston Marathon, but my um, expellation. I was expelled from the AAU for the following reasons. One, because I had fraudulently entered the race by using my initials, which was bullshit because other guys had fraudulently entered the race. Other guys had entered with their initials. Okay. Two, because I had run more than a mile and a half, and the mile and a half was the new cross-country distance, and that women's events went up to a mile and a half in cross-country. Three, because I had run with men, which was was shameful in its sort of sexual innuendo. And the fourth reason, the best, was because I'd run the Boston Marathon without a chaperone. So I said, what am I supposed to do? I mean, can the chaperone ride a bicycle? Because I don't know, you know, any, I don't know any other women who can run with me. So um, I was expelled from the AAU for, I think, 18 months. And then I had to uh, write up a report and if I wanted to be back in the AAU, which I wasn't sure I did. But I had to write a report. But I decided I had to be because, you know, the only way you're going to change a system is to really get back into the system and become active yourself in the system and, and make change. So I had to write up um, a report, and they had a hearing, and um, I presented my case, and I was reinstated into the AAU. But for the 18 months before, you know, after my expulsion in 67, um, I was invited everywhere to run in marathons because the race directors all wanted me there because of the publicity. And it was really great, especially to go up in Canada, where there were no restrictions, AAU restrictions one way or the other, because I was like a draft dodger running up in Canada. And to this day, I kind of have a very soft spot in my heart for Canadian runners, because they were very, very forward-thinking and and invited me up to their race. Um, And other times I would go to a race in in the States, not just a marathon, but let's say a 10-mile race or 15-mile race, and they would give me a bib number, but then they would write on it in, like, marker pen, you know, this is unofficial. And then when I would finish the race, if I was the fifth person in the race, I would get the unofficial men's fifth-place trophy, or they would have a unofficial first-place woman's trophy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It was really great. It was absolutely great. And I, I made millions of friends i mean not millions but lots and lots and lots of friends and it was it was it was really um the runners themselves i have to say and the race directors were were fantastic and that's always been the case it was it was only an ignorant public and only very very stodgy officials who gave me a hard time and the aau the aau 
gave us a hard time for everything. And we lived in terror of the AAU, I must tell you, because the AAU um, had these very draconian rules about amateurism where, you know, you had to be very careful if you even took gas money to travel to a race. So if a race director invited you to Canada or something like that or to a race, you, they say, we'll pay your expenses, we'll pay your gas money. And, you know, you better not take any a cent more than the gas cost, you know, because they'd find out. And, and um, if your prize was worth more than, like, $10, you could, you could lose your amateur status. And by losing your amateur status meant that you supposedly couldn't compete in any races. Well, I was already disqualified. And, and the amazing thing is, is I was disqualified because I followed the rules. You know, Arnie says, you know, you've got to do this properly because those people are really tough on the rules. Well, we followed the rules exactly. And there was nothing about gender, and there was nothing about gender in the rule book and nothing about gender on the entry form. And so we felt, and I still feel, very aggrieved by that because we – you know, I could have just gone to Boston and jumped in the race and, and, and maybe had no incident. It was the, the whole reason that they became infuriated was because I tried to follow the rules and officially register. So, you know, that, that, that really, really annoyed me and still annoys me to this day, clearly. But, but it changed history, you know? You know, you have to look at these things and say sometimes the most negative thing in your life become the most positive because the end result of it all was is that the rules were – they were forced to change the rules and it inspired me and radicalized me. It changed my whole life. It gave me a vision for what could be in the future and that the job that needed to be done. Be done. And I, I've told this again and again to people, young people especially and people in business. You know, if there's, if there's a negative situation, if you turn it upside down, you can make it a positive situation and you can create many, many opportunities. You can change people's lives in a very, very positive way. And for me to, to then get the inspiration to create women's running events was the thing that eventually led to the inclusion of women getting into the Olympic Games. But even more importantly, and jumping way ahead, and this is really what I'd like to talk to you most about, is empowering lives around the world where women really don't have any hope or empowerment or sense of self-esteem or ability to realize they can make themselves a better future. You can't realize that until you have that sense of empowerment, and a simple act of putting one foot in front of the other can give you that sense of empowerment. So... Anyway, getting back to my story, basically I got reinstated into the AAU. Then I began taking a very active role in the AAU. I became the first women's long-distance run committee chair in upstate New York. Nina took on that role. Nina Cusick took on that role in the New York City area. Um, Other women began wanting to run. We began campaigning together. Boston, Boston was our kind of focal point because it was the biggest, most publicized race um, in, the, in the world, and women, you know, were noticed there so that it was a very good PR opportunity for us. The press became very, very sympathetic to us, would always cover us seriously. Um, no more joking, no more bitterness as we began running and proving ourselves. Um, we began lobbying in the AAU and creating committees. And, um, and then also, from my point of view, because I'm not really a good committee person, I must say, I just, and, I, and I, you know, I just 
you know, spending endless hours in meetings seemed um, not nearly as productive to me as creating events. To me, the biggest thing was create an event like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they'll come. And if I could create the events, I knew I could get women to run. And if I could create events and motivate them and we could train together and we could do clinics and stuff together, we could learn to run. They could learn to run. That's what was going to get women to running more than to me than, than, the, than the committee decision. Both are, in, in reality, both are needed, but the committee decision becomes easier when you have a critical mass of women who are proving that they can run and want to run. So all the way up to, to, um, to the Olympics. So what we did was um, Arnie and I in Syracuse began creating a series of races in Syracuse from six-mile road races on up to a full marathon. Um, I learned how to get sponsorship, write press releases, do the newsletter, and we attracted runners from far and wide. Mm-hmm. And the, our club, known as the Syracuse Track Club and later the Syracuse Chargers, became the biggest club in New York, outside of the New York Roadrunners. We were very, very active with the New York Roadrunners also because they were sort of the antithesis of the AAU. The Roadrunners Club movement was refreshing, free-spirited, um, all about participation and and less about um, regulations and, and that didn't seem to mean anything. We championed measuring of courses, especially Ted Corbett, because we were sick of you know races that were getting uh, recognition that that you know that were not measured properly. We were determined to change the rules about water stations. It used to be in a long distance race you weren't allowed to take water until after ten miles. Can you imagine that? Um, as if taking water was some kind of a disgrace or having a sponge station. We were demanding things like like toilets and traffic control, um, what we thought were basic runner amenities. And in all the races that Arnie and I were organizing in Syracuse, we, tr- we tested out all these things. And so I was learning as a runner and learning as an organizer. And um, we even bid for and won the men's national 15K championships and the the marathon. We had the national championships marathon in 1972 in Syracuse. So that was the year um, of the Olympic trials. So the national championships were not as uh, not as big a deal, but we created a, a system where the prize was expenses to go to the Olympic trials because we couldn't give money, but we could create an opportunity. And that was what gave me the inspiration to create the trips for women in the Avon series. You know, we couldn't give prize money, but we could send women around the world to different events. So the seeds for that were laid at a very, very early age. Um, Then an amazing thing happened in 1972. That was a huge, huge year for women. The Boston Marathon finally um, had to admit women uh, officially. And they did, and um, Jock Semple, of course, was steaming about it. And he said, well, if women are going to um, run in the Boston Marathon, if they're going to be legal, they've got to meet the men's qualifying standard, which then was three hours, 30 minutes. So it was as tough then as, as it, almost as, as it's ever been 
for a woman to run the Boston Marathon. And there were eight of us who could do it, and eight of us were there. Um, and actually, when we finished the race, um, Jock Semple was impressed. You know, he started off being really irritated by it. But suddenly, as if because we were official, he began to notice us and, and saw that, you know, we ran, we ran well, we comported ourselves on, on a difficult day, as it turned out, very, very well. Um, I finished third in that race, and he had to present me with my trophy. He had a trophy for us. My trophy was broken, and he apologized for it. He said, I'm sorry that um, your trophy got broken in packing, and if you send it back, I'll replace it for you. And then he said, but you have been mad at you for five years, and you deserve a broken trophy. <laughs> I've kept the bro- I've kept it broken because it reminds me of him, and I actually now have it in the. I gave it to the um, the National Distance Running Hall of Fame in Utica with a you know a broken trophy with the, with the, with a little card that explains that whole incident. Anyway, after the Boston Marathon that year, the publicity was massive. It was as if the press never knew that women could run a marathon. We'd been doing it at Boston for five years with enormous publicity, but somehow it just went over their heads, and they said, oh, my God, women are official. The whole story all came out again, endless you know, stories and stuff. And a company in New York, Johnson's Wax, was launching a new women's um, shaving leg shaving product called Crazy Legs. And they saw this publicity, and they went to Fred Lebo, who had just created the New York City Marathon, and said, hey, 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 look at these women. They're running a marathon. Let's have a women's-only marathon in New York, and that would be a great product launch for us. And if you'll organize it, Fred Lebo, we will give you the sponsorship money. Well, Fred, never having had sponsorship money in his life, couldn't believe that he was going to get money to organize a race. And um, But he, he knew that there were only like half a dozen women who could run a marathon and probably not within a month after the after the Boston Marathon, and he came to Nina Cusick and me, and he said, you know, oh, my God, we've got this opportunity. What do you think? He said, I'm going to propose to them that we um, just won one loop of Central Park, you know, 10 Ks, and we're going to call it a mini marathon, and they'll call it the Crazy Legs Mini Marathon. What do you think? We said, that's a great idea because then we can get a lot more women. And he said, do you think we can get enough to make it a decent promotion? And, I, and we all said, well, all we can do is try. So t- t- um, Fred had something like 10,000 entry forms printed off flyers for this thing. And we sent them everywhere. We sent them to every school, every Y, every club in America that we could think of. And even Nina and I would run around New York City in our shorts and running shorts and shirts that said crazy legs on it, and we just put these flyers in people's hands. They thought we were crazy people. Um, Fred and I would go down to bars, and all these people would be smoking, and we'd hand out these flyers to the women, and they'd look at us like, are you out of your mind? Well, anyway, the day of the race, we had 78 women. Oh, my God, 78 women. I mean, it was like, as far as we were concerned, it was like 10,000 women. I mean, it was so huge. And so the race was a success. And um, it, it, there were many, many funny things about the race. But the point is, it was the first ever women's only road race. And so that was on June the 3rd, 1973. Then on June 24th, 19, sorry, 1972, 
Then on, on June 24th, 1972, Richard Nixon signed into um, uh, signed into the, the Title IX Amendment to the Constitution, which was the Equality of Education Amendment. Is the equality – let me say it again so you have a good recording here. Then on June 24th, 1972, Richard Nixon signed the Title IX Amendment to the Constitution, and that put into effect equality of education for women. And we didn't realize it at the time so much, but it also meant sports, because in all of these federally supported institutions, high school and universities, colleges, if they received federal funding, that meant the sports also would have to provide an equality uh, experience. And so that was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, that just changed the landscape. That that meant that over the years, any girl that went through high school or college had an equality of sports experience. And at first, um, and, and in many ways still, there is contentiousness about this. But the fact is, is that that is the the thing in the United States that has uh, really, really changed uh, the landscape for young girls growing up, so that they all have this opportunity. And consequently, you know, it's like a rising tide helps all ships. Around the world, people began seeing that the U.S. was now having this broad-based um, sports opportunity, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I mean that that was it was just a perfect storm of a year, you know, with the Boston Marathon, with the first ever women's road race, and then the Title IX amendment. For me, it continued because I then went to the Munich Olympics in 1972 as a journalist, and I actually went because I wanted to try to figure out how to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. And I thought maybe I could meet IOC and IAF officials there and kind of get some inroads and make some good contacts and start helping make this happen. And I felt really strong because, you know, we now had women officially in the Boston Marathon, which was a very big deal. And I thought, well, people in the Olympics are going to say, well, sure. You know, if you're in the Boston Marathon, we'll just put it in the Olympics, you know. Um, I just said this is how naive I was. But when I got to the Munich Olympics, you know, I was really slammed because, um, first of all, when the Palestinian terrorists murdered the Israeli athletes, I, I was just body slammed because, you know, I just had never imagined such a terrible thing happening, you know, on what I considered the holy altar of sports, which was the Olympics. And I, and I look back on that naivety now, and I, you know, as if terrorists are supposed to have a conscience. <laughs> you know, that's how naive I was, is that, oh, the terrorists wouldn't do anything at the Olympic Games. <laughs> I mean, that's a, it was a prime target for the terrorists. But anyway, it was, it was a very shocking experience for me. And I, I, I kept feeling like I couldn't get anywhere with, with also the progress of, of women in this in um in running and you know the olympics that year had just introduced 1500 meters for women and clearly they thought that that was a big deal and i thought if if we're going to go from 800 now to 1500 and it takes from 1960 to 1972 to go just that far 
how long is it going to take to get the marathon? It's going to be 2012. I mean, that's how long I figured it out. It's going to be 2012. And um, I I was so depressed. And I came home from the, the press center one night, and I'll never forget looking up at the skyline in the dark and see, thinking about this problem, and I saw that the, the lights, the neon lights against the skyline around the Olympic Stadium were Kodak and their IBM and their Deutsche Bank and Mercedes-Benz, and, and it went, ding, that's it. I said, we can make this happen by getting really good corporate sponsorship. And I got so excited, and I, I thought, yeah, just like this crazy legs, sponsor that women's race, we can get a major company to sponsor women's running and make it glamorous, make it accessible, make it non-intimidating, make it for women only so that we are not compared to men and we are not accused of, of being paced by men. And women will learn to run and women will learn to take the responsibility for their own destinies and their own pacing. And if we start a series of how to run clinics at the same time, we can show them how to run. We can reduce that intimidation. So that became my dream. And I came back from Europe, and that's when I started writing proposals like crazy and and taking them to different companies. At the same time, that's when I also knuckled in and decided um, I was going to try to become a really good runner because I knew I had a finite time to do that. And I also knew, to tell you the truth, Amy, to tell you the truth, I knew that if if I were a good runner, I could walk into a room with a proposal and I would have a lot more credibility if I were also a very good runner. And I don't have a lot of talent, physical talent, but I can tell you, I worked so hard. And I trained and trained and trained. And eventually, I was training 110 miles a week. And in my 35th marathon, um, I ran the Boston Marathon in 1975. And granted, I had a tailwind and a perfect temperature day, and I finally just hit the marathon perfectly for myself and ran a 251. And at that time, it was the third best time in the United States and sixth best time in the world. And I was now now I had I had the toolkit. I had the toolkit of being a a, a, a good good competitive runner, um, and I had the uh, skills of being at the Olympics, of of organizing events, and I put together, I took a weekend out of my life and sat in in a hotel and just wrote this proposal, and I called it my dream proposal on how a company could sponsor women's running, do it right, and look really good, but get women's marathon into the Olympic Games. Because if we could do it globally, if we could do it globally, I knew that we could gather the countries we needed. I knew that to get into the Olympic Games, we needed 25 countries and three continents having active participation in women's running. And if I had a Fortune 500 company, um, international company, we could we could put this on on in these different countries. Lucky for me, Avon Cosmetics, you know, who did business in something like 127 countries. Loved the proposal, loved me, hired me, and I started creating these events. i got to tell you, I take my hat off to them every day because the longest event in the Olympic Games was 1,500 meters, and they were willing to sponsor women's long-distance races when they weren't even official on the Olympic program. 
and we sponsored events from 5Ks on up to a full marathon, lots of 15Ks, 30K races. Even the AAU didn't even have, you know, nobody wanted those for national championships. So we did everything right with IAF and AAU and IOC standards. I bid for those events with the AAU, which then became TAC, which then became USA Track and Field. And we had, those were national championships, those 15, 20, 30K races in the U.S. And instead of prize money, we had a point system so that women could win their way to another race. You know, it's very, very, very unusual that a woman, anybody can win all the time. But often you can get thirds and fourths. And if you can finish in the top ten of any Avon race, you could win points and go to another race, win points. And if you got enough points, we'd send you to the national championship. So you could develop into an athlete and develop into an international athlete. Because if you then did well at the national championships, we sent you on to a global championship. And um, you yourself have been a part of this program in the 90s, but you can imagine it in the late 70s and the early 80s. These women, these women never had a chance anywhere, even in the U.S., really, to have this kind of program. And these women um, also, with the running clinics we started, we started a 12-week running clinic in each of the different cities where we had um, a, a race to get them ready for the race. They formed their own running groups. And here we are, like 30 and 40 years later. Some of those running groups are still together running, They've gone through marriages, husbands, divorces, deaths. They still run together every Saturday or Sunday morning. And they've spawned even complete running clubs of their own, women's running clubs, such as, I don't know, off the top of my head, like the Kansas City Express is a women's running club that has existed all those years and was started by that little running clinic out in Kansas City. Well, it became a big one because, you know, we had eventually, you know, several thousand women in these races. Every race was culminated with a global marathon championship so that we could prove to the International Olympic Committee that we were doing everything right and that we had these numbers of women from around the world. Avon, because it did business around the world, would send the best woman runner from their country to the global championship. And if we had a race in that country, the winner or the winners of that race would go to the global championship. So the races, you know, the the marathons were... um, on a world championship level, we always called them the substitute Olympic marathon for women. In 1978, it was in Atlanta. In 1980, in Wald-Neal, Germany, to honor Dr. Ernst von Aachen, who has, was the early pioneer of, of and believer in women's running. He was a doctor who did a lot of supportive medical evidence that showed that women had, like old Arnie said, inherent capability and endurance and stamina. And, in fact, Dr. Van Aken had two women's-only marathons in his hometown of Aldneal. So with Avon in 1980, we put on the third one um, in his honor in his hometown. And then, um, sorry, that was 1979. Let me repeat that. That was 1979 in Valneal to honor Ernst Van Aken. And then in 1980, you know, we, were, we really wanted to get um, the spotlight um, on, on the Avon Marathon. And we closed downtown London streets for the first time in history for a sports event. The London Olympics back in 1908 um, were not in downtown London. They were in White City Stadium. So we were the first to close the downtown London streets. And this was the the most profound event because um, 
it became what is now the London Marathon. In 1980, it was sort of the design model for the first London Marathon in 1981. But for us as women, it was the race that brought in not just 25 countries, but 27 countries, and not just three continents, but five continents. So we exceeded the Olympic requirement for inclusion in the Olympic Games. So after this marathon, um, I wrote a proposal called the Avon Status Report on Women's Distance Running, got that, um, and I wrote that at the request of the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee. Peter Uberoth and, and Richard Sargent said, look, we need some written stuff to take to the International Olympic Committee when they meet in Moscow. So they took that report to, to Moscow where they bid on the Olympic Games and new events to be included in the Olympic Games for Los Angeles. And um, they called me from um, Moscow, and they said that definitely they're going to include the 3,000, um, but they put the marathon on hold. I said, what do you mean they put the marathon on hold? And they said, well, because they've included the 3,000, they don't think they need to include another women's long-distance running event. I said, we've got to get the marathon. And he said, well, it's it's been tabled, and they're going to make another decision on this at a board meeting in next February 1981. And I said, we've got to convince that board to include the marathon. And he said, well, there was some talk about there's not enough medical evidence and uh, that that they believe that the marathon might be injurious to women. And he said, you should know that Tony Daly, our marathon I mean, our medical director for the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee held up your report and said, no, sir, we have the medical evidence right here in this report. And that's what got the decision tabled. So at least you're still hanging in there. So after that, that marathon, you know, I worked very closely with the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee and with the IAAF in London. And i got to tell you, John Holt, who was the executive director of the IAF was absolutely on our side and really made tremendous inroads to his contacts at the IOC. So when we met, um, when the when the IOC board met in February of 1981, um, naturally I flew out to Los Angeles with with that report again and did some massive you know lobbying before the meeting took place. But the meeting then to vote on um, different things um, took place that evening, and apparently Peter Uberoth stood up at the meeting and he said, you know, there's only one thing we're really asking for in this meeting. We'd really like a decision to include the women's marathon in the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games. And they voted on it, and the vote was 9 to 1, and apparently the only dissenting vote was, sorry, 8 to 1, and the only dissenting vote was the Russians. And the Russians said that they weren't voting for it because they didn't have any women marathoners. And, of course, that made me laugh because it was the same old myth. You know, I knew that the Russian women would be some of the best marathon runners if they only had the chance to, to run the marathon. But at any rate, um, we got the women's marathon into the Olympic Games, and there was this profound, um, profound statement at when the announcement was made. And the announcement to the press was made by Monique Berlieu, who was the executive director 
of the International Olympic Committee. She didn't have a vote because she was the executive director, but she made the announcement, and she said, this has been um, a very difficult decision for the women, but it's a very important one. And, um, you know, we, we were just, that was it. That was the moment I knew, you know, I knew that I knew how important this was, but I knew that the world didn't know how important it was until the first woman came out of the tunnel into the Olympic Stadium in 1984. And then the whole world was going to know how important it was because everybody around the world knows how far 26 miles, 385 yards, or 42.2 kilometers is, and they know it's far. So when the first woman would come out of the stadium, because of television, it was going to change the world. It was going to change the way the world looked at at women runners and women's capability um, because the marathon is such a powerful, powerful event. So that's how it played out. You know, there was there was press about the fact that, you know, the women got admitted in, in 1981, but it was 1984 when Joan Benoit came through the, the tunnel and into the stadium that the world really was, was changed and the world was really put on alert. It was It was a phenomenal, phenomenal moment. And I heard about um, another group called the the IRC, the International Runners Committee. Did you work with them at all for the? I I did not. I did not. And and I must say, one of the things, um, first of all, I wasn't invited to, which was yeah. interesting. Um, and the second thing that um, kind of upset me is that they would write letters to the IAF and the IOC, you know, saying you know it's outrageous that you're not letting women into the into the, the Olympic Games. Well, the, the point is, 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 you know, people need, um, people don't want something rammed down their throats. They really, they really need to be educated and um, brought into the fold and told, you know, the, the, the data, the statistics, here's the medical evidence. What can we do to make it happen? And so, you know, I, I actually was not a part of the International Runners Committee. And I, I thought it was, again, odd that I wasn't invited, um, particularly since I had the only global program. Yeah, it makes sense um, that the Avon raises... Um, a lot of people actually don't know the facts of why, you know, sports come and go in the Olympic Games. And, you know, I was always told that it's, you know, how much participation is involved. But you put it uh, in a great way for people to understand why sports are added or not added to the Olympic program? Well, you know, the host, the host city has a lot to do with it. Um, later on, many years later on, um, uh, Richard Sargent told me that they really loved the idea of windsurfing and they really loved the idea of baseball. And so they really wanted to make those things happen, and they did. They, they got them included. So I, you know, the host country has a, you know, oh, wasn't it, wasn't it Juan Antonio Samrich, the head of the IOC, whose son was a was a triathlete, and didn't he get the first triathlon into Barcelona in the Barcelona Games? So, so, so you know, um, y- you can say that it's all about data and statistics, but also what people want to see happen, you know, powerful people want to see happen, also counts for a lot. It's definitely true. Sometimes it's who you know. And and you had 
a lot of force behind you. You've become a great athlete, and you've been involved with women's running, um, especially with Boston. And you worked on the Avon races for a while, and then Avon um, kind of um, downgraded their sponsorship, but you have kept going with global opportunities for women with running. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, you know, everybody has to realize that corporations have budgets. And, you know, after 1984, Avon went into a, a downturn, corporate downturn, and they said, look, you know, we've succeeded in getting the women's marathon in the Olympic Games. The program has been a triumph for them, for us. Um, but, you know, we're going to, we're going to be cutting, we're cutting, we're cutting budgets now. And, and it, of course, I was crushed. You know, I was, I couldn't believe it. You know, and I, and in fact, I remember saying, it doesn't even cost that much money when you put it up against advertising. And the president of the company just smiled and he said, I know, but it looks expensive because, you know, we were doing it so well. We were doing it in-house. We weren't, we weren't sending it out to an expensive um, agency. We were doing it. And he said, but it looks expensive, and if we're going to have an austerity program, we can't have something, you know, that looks expensive. So um, I was, you know, very, very disappointed. At the time, I also had book offers, and I was working in television, and I was going to continue organizing races because I, I, I could stay. I certainly wasn't losing my job. You know, I was offered a very, very good job to stay at Avon. But, I mean, I knew where my heart was at that point, and it was with women's running. So I left the company and continued organizing women's races. And then, you know, in an amazing turnaround, 11 years later, Avon wanted to do the program again, called me, and we started again. And that's, for instance, when you got involved in the late 90s. And at that point, the the program already, it didn't have anything it had to prove for women's rights. What it really needed was to create those avenues and opportunities for participation. And so we were then um, going around the world with just 5 and 10K events to create accessibility. And also, frankly, you know, with, with prize money now being offered, we wanted to show that women, we were going to support women at the highest competitive level. So our, our 10K Global Championship was, um, was the richest 10K in the world for men or women and was also, I think, um, probably one of the highest women's uh, running paydays, you know, women's only paydays there was. Uh, probably outside of the money that was going down in Japan for women marathoners, and I never knew what that was because it was all under the table. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but but now you know I can you know I continue now with with not organizing races so much as being the voice for those so those races. Avon races, by the way, still con- uh, uh, still continue in some countries and have for thirty years. Um, on May fourth, just a few weeks ago. I ran the 30th anniversary of the Avon 10K for the Frauenlauf in Berlin, which I started in 1983 with Horst Milde. And now his son, Mark Milde, is the race director. And 30 years later, um, we went from 243 women in 1983 
to 20,000 last May 4th on the 30th anniversary. Phenomenal. Wow. That is, that is really amazing um, that, it, that it's continued to go. And, and you have become the voice of running, and you've done 36 years of the Boston Marathon coverage. You've done um, Emmy Award-winning TV commentary, and they just did the movie uh, Makers the, about the women who make history. And so you have gone from a runner to an activist to global opportunities for women and now the voice of, of running. Um, did you think that your career would be tied up in women's running when you first ran in, the, in that 1967 Boston Marathon? Not when I ran in it, when I finished it, yes. When I finished it, I knew that the 1967 Boston Marathon had completely changed my life um, and that I was going to spend a lot of my life you know, running, and I was going to spend a lot of my life convincing other women how good it is. I had no idea that it would happen as quickly as it's happened. I had no idea that right in my own lifetime there would be more women runners than men. I always thought we would be equal. I really did. I, I actually always believed we'd be equal. I used to say, I looked at some of my quotes from 30 years ago, and I said, in my own lifetime, women's running is going to become as popular and as publicizable as men's. Um, and and it's, that it's now more popular and publicizable than men's is phenomenal. I mean, really, you know, 65 to 85% of all the sales in running shoe stores and apparel is women. Um, 53% of all the runners right now in the United States are women. Um, the population of uh, half marathon races and and 10 and 5K races is, exceeds. Women are there are more women than men, um, and and women are climbing up in the marathon distance. And the only reason they aren't equal is because um, it takes a long time, you know, to train for a marathon. And and quite frankly, women still have the bulk of responsibility for raising the kids and running the home. So it's very very hard to fit in the training time and the hours to do that. But I think one of the things I want to talk about right now is. What, what we have left to do. And um, just at the point when I kind of thought, you know, the equality is there, at least in North America and it's clearly growing in Europe, you know, kind of more than ever I'm seeing the, the fact that there are millions and millions of women who live in very fearful situations, who are impoverished, um, ignorant, are rebound socially, culturally, and religiously and have, um, have no opportunities really at all, to say nothing of running. And one of the, the, the most amazing things that's happened to me in the last two years has been women all over the world have begun writing and emailing me quite organically without knowing each other or doing it and saying that they've seen the picture of me or a film clip of me running with 261 bib numbers on my chest and they're writing 261 on their arms or on their backs or putting it on their numbers because 261 makes them feel fearless. So what I am trying to start now, and this is just only a couple months old, is something called like 261 Fearless. It's a project where women around the world, some who don't even run, will be able to connect with women who do run and have that sense of empowerment that we feel as runners and have a friend and have a communication because ultimately running for women isn't about running. It's ultimately about empowerment. It's about fearlessness. It's about self-esteem um, and freedom. 
and women can impart that to other women even if the other woman can't run because it's also about communication. So I don't know what technological thing I'm going to be able to develop. I'm working with a lot of other women on this, um, and we're working hard on the technology point, but maybe creating a safe portal where women around the world can communicate with each other, um, where we can organize events under a 261 banner where women once again can come together and experience that same kind of camaraderie and then um, and and fearlessness and freedom and also be competitive if they want to be um, and also open up places perhaps where other systems have failed and I know I'm being vague here and I don't want to name any countries in particular but just Last month, I was running in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia in the first ever women's only marathon. And half of those women were Islamic women. Plenty of them were running in hijabs, you know, so the headscarves, long, long sleeves, long pants. And they understood a lot about fearlessness and freedom. And I think that they're going to be extremely helpful in opening up and breaking down many cultural and social barriers. And as I say, I don't want to be too specific about it now, but I'm very, very excited about the potential of, of this. And I'm, and I'm quite thrilled, you know, that, that the 261 has happened like that. Who would have ever thought that just because protecting my numbers from Jock Semple could help create a new revolution in women's running is really quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and we're... Uh, do you still have those original numbers? Absolutely. You know, it's, there, there are two things I'm going to grab uh, if the house catches on fire. You know, well, of course, making sure my husband's out the door, but is is the first the first heart locket he ever gave me, the first piece of jewelry my husband ever gave me, and my 261 bib number. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> uh, you have, uh, you've gotten a lot of things with running, and, um, I know you were the first class of the National uh, Distance Running Hall of Fame. You were named the Runner of the Decade uh, by Runner's World Magazine in 1966 and 1976. You, in 2011, were inducted into the USA National Women's Hall of Fame for creating uh, global change or positive for creating positive global change. And I think you're still doing that with starting this 261 Fearless. I, I think it's an amazing idea. Um, that we have experienced, you know, this amazing freedom in, in the U.S. and North America, but there's still places that haven't done that, haven't gotten to feel what we've, we've felt. And I love that you are taking it outside of the of the border and giving it to other women. Yeah, it's very validating to receive those awards. It, it really is. I think um, being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame was a really huge event for me um, because um, – the United States, I think the, the highest thing that a woman can win is the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But I, I guess the next thing would be being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And, and as I say, it wasn't, it wasn't for running the Boston Marathon. It was for creating the social change. And that helped inspire me to think, you know, we've got to take this beyond the U.S. We've, we've got to get that. You know, you know I mean, I've already done a lot. I know we have already done a lot with globally huge amount globally and and the olympics of course was massive globally 
but as I say, there's still so much to do. And I think then I thought, you know, you're 66, but um, it's it's never too late <laughs> to create another revolution. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's perfect that you're that you're doing this. And I love the 261. I think that's really amazing. That just inspire that. It is. It is. It is fun. Hey, what time is it? It is now 2:56. So. I was uh, wanting to get that last part in about your awards and stuff. Good. Thank you so much. That's great. So, listen, I should go and get on my Skype to these kids. They're calling from China. Oh, fun. Yeah, they're, they're, it's a, they're three kids in China who are working on a history project. Um, they've already won a trip to the United States, and they just want to put some final touches on it. And it's about um, – it's actually about Title IX, um, and it's nice to think that these kids in China are working on a Title IX project for history. You know, that's great. And that they in the, and they're obviously looking at it from a global perspective, which is really great. Wow, that is amazing. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for a really great interview. It's been fun, and I've, I've been excited to do this, and I'm glad that we found the time and got it done. Well, Amy, I'm so glad, you know, that you've been a part of the Avon program for one thing. I mean, outside of all the other things you've done and the running you've done, but, you know, that you've run actually on that program. And to meet your family and come out to Bangkok with us that time, that was really, really great um, because you understand. I mean, you saw those women in Thailand, and, um, and you know, you saw Tegla that day win that race. And, uh, you know, they, 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 you know how, how profound it is and how, how much running has changed those lives of those women. So um, it, was, it was really great that you were part of that and understood that. Yeah, and you've created, you know, you've created opportunity for me and other women, and it's been fun, and I can't wait to see what else you create. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll certainly cl- cl- uh, include you because with the 261 Project, we're going to need everybody involved. Excellent. Okay. Take care. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.